0: Evening's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was twelve years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat.
1: Thanks, Helen. Helen. G'day, everyone. It was complete silence at five when I said hello. It's fine. I like you guys better anyway. Um, Tonight... We're looking at a pretty cool passage. Keep it open in front of you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here tonight. For whatever reason, we're here tonight. Here we are, and we're about to feed on your Word together. What a great and glorious privilege it is to do that, Lord, and we pray that as we do feed on your Word, that you would nourish us in all the ways that we need to be nourished. Amen. Tonight, we're thinking about interruptions interruptions. I wonder how you go with being interrupted. I was actually in the middle of writing the introduction for tonight's sermon this week and uh, I was interrupted by a call from Belle, my wife, and she called me to to tell me that uh, our youngest son had just tested positive for COVID. That was a bit of an interruption. I uh, had to leave work basically immediately We then had to go and pick up our two boys who were at school at the time, and then we all got to go and take PCR tests. So my introduction about interruptions was actually interrupted. (laughs) God's got to have a sense of humor, right? And if you're sitting there wondering how I can be up here tonight, given the rat result, it actually turned out to be a false positive. So it was only uh, six hours in isolation. We were lucky. But I wonder how do you deal with interruptions, be they COVID-related or otherwise? Are you good at kind of rolling with them or do they make you really frustrated sometimes? Generally speaking, like none of us enjoy having our plans interrupted, but interruptions never seem to phase Jesus. There are actually a couple going on for Him in our passage tonight and He's not worried about any of them. Which is a bit surprising when you think about it. For a man on a mission, the kind of mission that he was on, you would think that he would get a little more rattled when there are disruptions and distractions. But he doesn't. In tonight's passage, Jesus returns to Galilee by boat. And basically, as he comes ashore, he just gets mobbed by a crowd and they follow him everywhere. Like, I don't know how the guy got anything done with, with, with a crowd like that basically following his every mood. It must have been frustrating. Whatever he had planned for that day though, we don't know what it was, whatever it was, it gets interrupted by a man man named Jairus. Now, Jairus was a big-shot leader at the local synagogue and he pushes his way through the crowd, maybe the the crowd actually parted for him because of how important that he was, and he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs for his help. His 12-year-old daughter was deathly ill with fever. She was, she was on a deathbed, basically, in a critical condition. Verse 24, what happened? So, Jesus went with him, we're told. Now, that is, that is so simple, we'd be tempted to just skip right past it. But in that moment, Jesus shelves whatever plans He had as He got off the boat that day. And there's no grumbling, there's no excuses, there's no, look, sorry, Jairus, I'd love to Don't have the time today, mate. Jesus makes the time for Jairus. When Belle and I first got married, we're in that lovely stage at the start where you're just learning all this weird stuff about each other that you never knew. I remember learning that, that she has a no running in public policy. She's happy for me to run, but she refused to. Oh, it's starting to rain? No running happy to get wet. Oh, we're going to miss the bus, no running. I'm happy to walk. Now, she heard this this morning, and she was like, you need to make it clear, I like jogging when I'm dressed for it. But if I'm not dressed for it, I'm not running. (laughs) That's the rule. Anyway, to this day, she refuses to run. There is one exception, though. We're flying out to Fiji in just a little over a month. You better believe we're making that flight, even if it means she has to run. It's going to be a sight to behold. But when you look at the Gospels, I'm convinced that Jesus had a no running in public policy. So maybe it bells on to something. Because not once do you ever see Jesus running, or rushing, or even in a hurry, really. You ever notice that? Jesus never seems to be in a rush. Isn't that interesting? I recently heard of a book written back in the 70s called Three Mile-an-Hour God by Japanese theologian, Kasuki Koyama, and he calls Him the three-mile-an-hour God because that's the speed at which we walk. And God's pace is just as slow and unhurried. He walks because He is love, Koyama says, and because love is incompatible with hurry. There's some truth to that, isn't there? Love is kind of incompatible with hurry. For instance, Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to listen well when you're in a rush? Like like it's basically impossible to get all the details. Or have you ever noticed how you're far less likely to notice uh, what's going on in someone else's life or the people around you when you're in a hurry? You just don't even notice what's going on for them. Or it's funny how much less loving and gracious I am behind a wheel when I'm late. (laughs) you like me? It's because love and hurry don't mix. I wonder if that's part of our problem sometimes, you know? It's not that we don't want to love, it's just that often we're too busy to love well. Many of us are living hurried lives, aren't we? Hurried lives, and we live in a world that values productivity and efficiency almost above anything else. And so, uh, without even realising it, lots of us are actually probably operating without any real margin in our lives. We're just going and going and going and going. And you know, without margin, we're not going to even see the needs that are around us, let alone respond to them in love. Because we'll be so wound up in our own stuff, on onto the next thing, on making the most of our time. Without any real margin in our lives, we'll actually see the interruptions as frustrations, rather than as opportunities to love. I liked what the uh, late author and theologian Eugene Peterson used to do, when he lectured at a Bible college. He would leave for his class, like 15 to 20 minutes before it, it began and he did that because he wanted margin to accommodate the many interruptions that he would encounter on his way to class. Like, every time he walked around the campus, people would stop him, want to chat, want to get him to sign a book, get him to pray with him, whatever it was. And he actually just wanted, he wanted the margin to be able to stop and, and to listen well and to engage with love and not just be rushed. That's a really simple thing to do, isn't it? I wonder whether you could actually do with building some margin into your life somewhere, And then I wonder what impact that might have on the way that you're able to respond to interruptions. Interesting thought. Well, Jairus interrupting Jesus is the first one we come to in tonight's passage. It's not the last. It's actually quickly followed up by a second interruption. You see, in the crowd that day that was following Jesus, there was a woman. And Mark tells us she'd been suffering terribly from a chronic disease for. For 12 years, and it was terrible on multiple fronts, right? Not just the the physical suffering that she'd endured, but there was financial suffering, we're told. This poor woman had spent every cent she had looking for treatments, none of which had worked. So, she was now poor, as well as sick. And that's not to mention the social suffering that she must have been enduring, right? Because her condition actually made her ceremonially unclean, according to Jewish law. Which basically meant she wasn't allowed to go into the temple to worship God and offer sacrifice, and it also meant that any time she came into contact with someone, they too became unclean, so people would have been keeping their distance. For 12 years, can you imagine what that must have been like for her? Such is her desperation, just like Jairus, she comes to Jesus for healing. Unlike Jairus though, instead of begging for His help, she's actually just convinced all she needs to do is touch His cloak and she'll be healed, which she does. What happens? Take a look in verse 29. She's immediately healed. Immediately healed. Stops Jesus in His tracks and He goes on a search to find out who it was that touched Him. Now, this second interruption is similar to the first, but it's different in a really important way. Here, we actually know what plans this woman has just interrupted. Jesus is on His way to heal a critically ill girl. Jairus is right there beside Jesus, leading Him to His house. You can only imagine how Jairus must have been feeling as Jesus all of a sudden decides to stop. It's it's like, what? what? Hello? (laughs) Like it's, it's kind of mind-boggling, actually. A bit like when Jesus decides to have a nap in the middle of a raging hurricane. You remember that two weeks ago? We looked at that together, and it's like, what? The disciples are incensed by it. It's like, teacher, don't you care if we drown? They say to Him. What are you doing taking a nap? Well, here, <laughs> no one's bold enough to rebuke Jesus like the disciples did, but, but surely Jairus would have been asking a similar kind of question, like, teacher, what are you doing? Why have you stopped? Don't you care that my daughter's dying? <laughs> like, I would have been asking that question if I was Jairus, wouldn't you? And then what about when, when the awful news arrives, there in verse 35, Jairus's worst fears are realised. While Jesus was still speaking, right, he's still in the conversation with this woman, some people come from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, your daughter is dead, they say. Her daughter is dead. It's like, time's run out. Jesus is too late. He's taken too long. How do you think you'd be feeling if you were Gyrus in that situation? So close, but so far. I'm neighbours with uh, John Heyman. Some of you might know him. He works as a doctor in the uh, emergency department over at RPA. And I, I gave him a call this week because I wanted him to walk me through kind of the triage process When someone comes into emergency like how do you work out who gets seen first put me onto this thing called the australian triage scale you can see that up there there's five different kind of levels different categories that they sort people into so a one is someone who requires immediate aggressive intervention that's how they put it immediate aggressive intervention so someone who's like in a cardiac cardiac arrest or someone who needs to be resuscitated they need to be seen immediately But then the further down the scale you go, the the lower the threat level to life, and so the longer you can afford to wait, basically. So a category five, on the opposite end of the scale, is described like this. The patient's condition is chronic or minor enough that symptoms will not be significantly affected if assessment and treatment are delayed up to two hours from arrival. I mean, looking at that scale, like, and in this passage, it's like Jesus has just totally mucked things up, hasn't he? He's got it around backwards, basically. He decides to stop for a woman with a chronic disease. She'd been suffering for 12 years, right? What's an extra hour? What difference is that going to make? She can wait, in other words. She's category five. Instead, Jesus stops for her before attending to Jairus' daughter, who's probably somewhere up there in like one or two. She needed to be seen right now. She's critical. She's critical. And instead, Jesus attends to the chronic, before the critical, and in the time that it takes for Him to engage with the woman, the critical becomes fatal. I mean, that'd be considered gross malpractice in today's terms. It's like, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? That is a fascinating turn in this story, (laughs) and it throws up some interesting things, I think, about about the way we think about God and His timing. Like, it's interesting, we do not want the three-mile-an-hour God when it comes to our prayers and requests, do we? We don't want the walking God, we want the God that jumps, the God that gets right to it, the God that, that's working according to, our, to, to my timeline rather than His. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you've all felt that before, at different times and in different ways, we, we all do. And I'm sure there actually might be people here tonight who are feeling that way right now. Who are frustrated with God's timing, and maybe even starting to get a little angry at the fact that it doesn't seem like God's moving fast enough, or maybe He's not even moving at all, as far as you can tell. If you are feeling like that tonight, know that you're not alone. Like, we've all felt that way before. My cousin died in an avalanche when we were 21. Some of you might have heard this story before. But he'd just finished uni, and he decided to go work on the ski fields in Canada. And one day, while he was out skiing, there was just a freak avalanche triggered on the run that he was on. Search and rescue found his body the next day. We were like brothers. It was the worst moment of my life. For a long time after, I remember just being angry at God and particularly angry at his timing. His timing was terrible. (laughs) He could have done something, but he didn't. And I couldn't work out why. And I still can't work out why. He let him die. And it didn't make any sense to me. And I wonder if Jairus is in that space too, when he gets the news of, of his daughter's death. It's like, what are you doing, Jesus? Why didn't you care that my daughter was dying? What does Jesus say to him? Take a look in verse 36 with me. Don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Notice how similar that is to what Jesus had said to the disciples after He'd calmed the storm. Very similar. Why are you so afraid? He said to them, do you still have no faith? Fear and faith. And really, he's saying to both of them, to his disciples back in chapter 4, to Jairus here in chapter 5, he's saying, you, you need to keep clinging to me, even when you don't understand, especially when you don't understand, don't fear, cling to me. You see, Jairus and his mates, actually, they were missing a big piece of the picture. They didn't know who they were dealing with, like they knew Jesus had power, obviously, which is why you'd you'd go to Him and ask for healing, but they didn't really know who He was. Actually, no one there that day knew. Not not the crowd, not Jairus, not even His disciples. And none of them knew that for Jesus, raising the dead was no problem at all. No problem at all. In fact, for Him, it was as easy as rousing someone from sleep. Jesus knew that about Himself, but no one else did. And in the absence of their understanding, All they could do was just believe, just as He'd said to them, to cling to Him. That was really the only option. And it's actually no different for us. It's no different for us. In those periods of life when God's timing seems terrible, when He's moving at a pace that is not our choosing, when He allows things to happen or not to happen, and it makes absolutely no sense to us. We can't work out why. In those times, we actually need to do what Jesus tells Jairus to do. Don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe. Look, I know, I know that sounds kind of trite to hear when you're in the middle of your pain, believe me, I know, and yet it really shouldn't surprise us that that's the answer, because it's God we're talking about after all. It's God we're talking about. We don't like His timing, that's fine, but God sits outside of time, doesn't He? We only can see the right now. That's the only perspective we have, the moment that we're in. Well, God sees all the moments. He sees all the implications. So, what is, like, impossibly complex, and really what's unknowable to us about what's going on, it's actually simple and straightforward for Him, because He's God, So when we don't understand, we actually need to realize, kind of like Jairus in that space, when the news comes in and it's like, what's going on? We too are probably missing a big piece of the picture. That's actually part of what it means for God to be God, right? And we can't put our trust in Him without also putting our trust in His timing. You can't kind of separate those two things out, even though we might like to from time to time. Those two things go hand in hand. And to trust Him is actually to trust that He knows what He's doing, even if we don't. Even if we don't, He does. Especially when we don't know. Which, you know, if we're honest, is quite often. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now, fortunately for Jairus, he actually only has to sit in that uncomfortable space for a little while. Basically, as long as it takes Jesus to get back to his house. Jesus enters, takes the dead girl by the hand, and he says to her, Talitha Coom, which is like a term of endearment, actually. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing that a parent might say to wake up a sleeping child. Like, little one, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. And she does. She does. She gets up. Again, it is so simple, it is easy for us to miss, but this right here is is Jesus facing off the greatest power that He's ever faced yet, and it doesn't look like it, but it's a far greater force, a far greater force than the furious storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's a far greater force than that legion of demons in the man in the tombs. Because here, Jesus is facing down death itself. And just like every other force that we've seen Him face so far, there is actually no contest. Because for Jesus, resurrection is as easy as waking someone from sleep. And the few who were there to witness it that day were completely astonished. It's not what they were expecting. Not even death can stand against this man. He can call the dead back to life, as if they'd only been asleep. Now, it's, it's interesting, as, as you get to the end of this episode and you kind of look over the whole thing again, this these series of kind of interruptions for Jesus, if you look closely you'll see that this is less a story about Jesus being interrupted, it's actually more a story of the way that Jesus interrupts. You see, both Jairus and the woman think that they're interrupting Jesus for something, when in fact, He ends up interrupting them for something far more than they bargained for. It's really interesting. For instance, Jairus comes to Jesus looking for a fever cure, right? Just a little bit of healing from sickness. Instead, his daughter dies. Jesus comes to him and says, don't fear, just believe. Jairus actually gets a lesson in trust he never knew he needed. And rather than just a fever cure, Jesus gives him a resurrection, He interrupts the natural order, right? Because sick people sometimes get better, dead people never come back to life, never. It's not the case with Jesus though, because He's got the power to interrupt the natural order and in doing so, He actually calls Jairus to have the kind of faith he didn't yet have. This is the synagogue leader of all people and he needs a, a lesson in what real trust looks like. It's similar with the bleeding woman, only instead of the natural order, Jesus interrupts the social order. It's beautiful. You see, this woman, she's got no interest in being noticed. Did you see that? She doesn't want to be noticed. She just she wants the healing without the hubbub. And, and like, honestly, you can't blame her, because given she was a woman, given that she was ceremonially unclean, if she had been found to have touched Jesus this great, respected rabbi, she would have invited enormous shame and dishonour upon herself. And so her plan is just to, just to touch and run. Of course, Jesus, He interrupts her plans. He seeks her out, He makes her go public. Gosh, that must have been really uncomfortable for her. And I think you see in the text, right, she falls at his feet in fear and trembling. She doesn't know what he's going to react with. She's probably expecting to be abused by him for having touched her. Instead, he applauds her for her faith. He applauds her. He doesn't just give her what she wanted. He gives her what she needed. That's what he's doing. He restores her social standing before everyone, before that massive crowd this unnamed, unclean woman, not assent to her name. Here Jesus accepts her and He gives her a name. Did you notice that? He calls her daughter. Called daughter by Jesus. It's like, wow. And in that moment, she's restored in every sense. Not just physically, but in every sense. She gets not just what she wanted, but what she needed. And, and this is my favorite part, Jairus, the wealthy, powerful, big shot, leader of the synagogue, Jesus makes him wait for this woman. Scandalous. And, and as Jesus is telling Jairus to just believe, I would not at all be surprised if he's actually pointing at the woman. Believe like her. Jesus is interrupting the natural and the social order because that's what Jesus does. (laughs) He interrupts. That's why He came, to disrupt and to disturb this broken world of ours. He turns it upside down. I mean, His very first words recorded in the Gospel of Mark make this point clear. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, it might not sound like it, but Jesus is announcing the biggest interruption of all time. The Kingdom of God has come near, the interruption has begun, and that's what we see happening time and time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry. Whether it's through word or through deed, everything about Him is disruptive, isn't it? Wherever He goes, we find Him interrupting normal programming. It turns the world on its head and His miracles, you know, whether it's storms or spirits, death or disease, Jesus is interrupting the brokenness by putting some of the pieces of our fractured world back together again. That's what He's doing in our passage tonight. And as He does, He's declaring to us, He's declaring to the world that the interruption has begun, the kingdom builder has started the rebuild. Everything He said and did as He walked among us, was proclaiming this same promise, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. It was true back then, and it's still true today. And so it's a promise that really should interrupt our lives as well, shouldn't it? I wonder, has it interrupted yours? Sometimes, sometimes worry about living in a place like Manly which is kind of funny because there's not a whole lot for us to worry about, (laughs) which is kind of my point, right? Like, life here is is often so good for so many reasons. It's not always, but it's often. It's safe, it's, it's reliable, it's stable, it's comfortable. And I thank God every day for the blessing of getting to live here. And yet I also worry, what if this lifestyle, what if my wealth what if my ambitions actually end up insulating me, in a way, against God's interruptions? What if instead of gratefully receiving them, I end up actually just getting frustrated by them? It's like, this is your spot in my life, just right here, God, please stay in your lane. It's like, you know, as if, as if God has to fit in with me, it's a bit like the rich young ruler if you recall that story. He comes and he interrupts Jesus. You know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Great question. But it's Jesus that actually ends up interrupting him because of the answer Jesus gives him. What does he say? Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, then come follow me. That, that is some interruption. But this young, rich guy actually just can't accept it, can he? Because of his lifestyle, because his wealth, they've actually insulated him And so, Jesus' interruption is actually just a sad frustration. He rejects it, and ironically, actually ends up far poorer because of it. That's the irony of that story. Friends, God doesn't offer to give us what we want, He offers us to give us what we need. To open our eyes to the truth, to convict us of all the ways we've mucked up, to offer us forgiveness and then to work at shaping us into the image of His Son. And that will always involve some kind of interruption, always. And just like with Jairus and the woman, his interruptions will be uncomfortable. But they'll always be for our good, always. We started asking tonight the question, how do you go with interruptions? I wonder what your answer is. Do you have the margin to respond in love, the way that we see Jesus do, like in a passage tonight? What about when when it's God who's doing the interrupting, and what about when His timing really doesn't make any sense? Are you still willing to cling on to Him? Or perhaps there are areas in your life, parts of the way that you're living or approaching your life, that you know are actually yet to be interrupted by the Lordship of Jesus. Or maybe it's your whole life, maybe none of it's been interrupted yet. Are you ready for Him to interrupt, even if it makes you uncomfortable? How has God been interrupting you? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that You haven't left this broken world uninterrupted, You actually have come into our world in order to put it back together again, in order to restore it to the way it's supposed to be. Something that you started with your son, Lord, that you continue to this day by the work of your Spirit in us. Father, we pray that we might be those who are open to your interruptions. We're not too busy. Father, we pray that we're those people who can trust in your timing, even when it doesn't make sense to us Lord, that we might cling to You in those times. Father, we ask that we might be those people who welcome Your interruptions as You form us into the image of Your Son, even when it's uncomfortable, Lord. maybe we be those who welcome Your interruptions. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen.